0: Well, good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whenever you find yourself listening to this sermon. I have an opportunity to speak to you directly, those of you who are listening online. Due to some technical difficulties, we weren't able to record our sermon from this Sunday, September 6th, and so I have an opportunity to to preach it to you directly. So I know it's a little odd for me to be speaking to you as you're listening on your computer or at home. It's important to us... It's important to me that you would hear the vision of where we're going as a church. Over the next three weeks, we want to have a conversation about who we are as a church and where we're going. And it's important to us that we would start this conversation by talking about God. That seems like the appropriate place to start when we talk about where we're headed as a church and as a part of Redemption Hill Church, specifically in La Habra. We aren't really talking about what ministries and programs we want to continue or start. We aren't talking about what elements of our church service you like or dislike. We care most about our hearts before God. See, our preferences and our opinions and our input can be good and helpful things if that's done well, if our opinions and input are given at the appropriate time. And I don't mean to imply that we don't care about those things. We do. We really do. In fact, we ask for those things because we want to do this well. We want to do this with humility and with integrity. And so we ask for input and for evaluation. But I honestly think that if we were to become the church that Scripture implies, we would just care a lot less about programs and about personal preferences. Because if we were to become the church that Scripture implies, if we were to become the people that God has called us to be, we would witness and experience the power of God. We would witness and experience the power of the gospel to break addictions and to save marriages, to overcome fears, to answer desperate prayers, to redeem people, to change their eternal destiny. See, we're not interested in just putting on a church service each week. We're interested in partnering with God in the redeeming and the life-changing work that he wants to do in our church and in this community. We're interested in being part of a church family that gives our friends and our families and our neighbors a sneak peek, a preview of the coming Kingdom of God today. But before we can help them know God, we have to know God. Now as a pastor I get to meet with a lot of people I get to hear a lot of stories. I get to ask a lot of questions. And sometimes I'm surprised by the conversations that I have. I met with somebody recently who was in a serious dating relationship. And I knew it was a serious dating relationship because I'd spoken with his girlfriend and they were talking about getting married. In fact, she was anticipating a proposal at any time. So as we sat together, I asked him if he could just Tell me about her. Just tell me what's so special about this girl. And he looked at me for a while and he said, I'm not sure what to say. Now, I don't know how much time you spend around couples who are dating or engaged, but my wife, Krista and I spent about five years teaching engaged and newly married couples. And I can tell you that that's a really surprising answer to hear from somebody that's in a serious dating relationship. So I said, well... Tell me what's special about her. Tell me what you find helpful about your relationship or interesting about her as a person. Essentially, tell me why you love her. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not sure. No one's ever really told me what to say. I mean, I I think it's good that we're together. I know that she's good for me. Now imagine my level of concern at this point. But that sounded like a good place to start. Okay, you know that she's good for you. How do you know that she's good for you? Tell me about that. Well, all my friends are dating somebody and everyone says that we're really good together. And my friends tell me that she's making me a better person. And it's not like I don't want to be with her. I mean, I wanna get married and everything. Now I'll stop here. I'll stop the story here. Is anybody else concerned about this relationship? I mean, even as you listen, are you concerned about this relationship? Do you see some red flags here? And here's the real question that I would ask. Does he love her? Does he love her? We would say no. I mean, clearly no. How do we know that he doesn't love her? Maybe he's just not good at articulating his feelings. Is that possible? I suppose that's possible, but we... We know instinctively when we listen to this conversation because you don't have to prompt somebody to talk about what they love. You don't have to coax it out of them. You know when you talk to someone who's actually in love, they won't stop talking about it. In fact, you can't get them to shut up about it. We also know because if this relationship was working for him, he would know it. He wouldn't need other people to tell him that it's working. He would know that it's working because he would have experienced it for himself. Now, you might be relieved to find out that I made this story up completely. You're probably relieved for two reasons. First, you're relieved for his poor, made-up girlfriend, because you're feeling really bad for her right about now. Secondly, you're relieved to know that I'm not looking for opportunities to use our personal conversations as sermon illustrations, which I certainly wouldn't do, unless I asked your permission first, of course. But here's, here's the thing. That relationship that I'm describing is exactly where many Christians are in their relationship with God. That if you were to sit across from the table or you were to have a cup of coffee with someone and you were to ask them, a Christian, you were to ask them why they love God, their response would be equally lame. Their answer would be just as disconcerting as the answer of this made-up boyfriend. They might say something like, well, I know that God is good for me. All my friends are Christians. And they all say that God is making me a better person. And it's not like I don't want to be with God. I mean, I want to go to heaven and everything. See, I think we are underwhelmed by God and the gospel. Some of us are underwhelmed by our sin. Some of us are underwhelmed by God's love. But the thing is, who we are is driven by our understanding of who God is. What we believe about God determines how we live, and it either changes how we live or it makes no difference whatsoever. Who we are as a church is driven by our understanding of who God is. It either changes how we live and serve together or it changes nothing at all. What we believe about the kingdom about God determines our effectiveness for the kingdom of God or it determines our lack of effectiveness for the kingdom. And knowing God is different than knowing about God. See, to know God is to be overwhelmed by our sin, and consequently to be overwhelmed by God's love and forgiveness for us. Because to know God is to fall in love with him. Now we're going to look at a lot of scripture as we talk through this, and there's more scripture than I have time to share and there's more things that God has laid on my heart than I have time to share. So I would, just, I would just ask if you would join your heart with me as we pray and then we're going to open the word of God together. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would speak to us now, that you would speak through me as we look into your word and that you would speak to the hearts of those who are listening even now. Would you open our eyes, Lord, to see who you are truly, and how desperately you love us. And Lord, would you help us to fall in love with you? We pray this in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Now, if you have your Bible there with you, or your iPad or your phone, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Most of you are going to be familiar with this passage, but Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're actually trying to trick him and ask him Jesus what is the most important thing of all of the Old Testament which is most of your Bible what's the most important commandment for us to follow so Matthew chapter 22 starting in verse 36 says this teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law and he said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind Now, Jesus' answer to their question is a quote. It's a quote from God in the Old Testament where God commanded the people of Israel to love God with everything they had. But how do we love God if we don't know him? And how do we know God? Because God is not impersonal. He wants to be known. That's why he's revealed himself through the Bible. God has revealed himself, and he's revealed who he is and what he's like, through his word. Now, it wasn't written for him, it was written for us, that we might get an accurate understanding of God, so that we might know him. See, the Bible is God's love letter to his children. We don't often think of it that way, but that's what it is. And what we see in this letter that God has written to his children is the story of God. The story that's revealed in the Word of God is what we've come to know as the gospel, the good news. The good news revealed in God's Word is that he desperately loves us, even if we don't love him back. The good news that's revealed in God's Word is that he acted out of love for us, even when we didn't love him at all. Now, the Bible is a love story. It's the story of God's Son, Jesus. So if we want to know God, we go to His Word, where we see God's heart for us revealed in the person of Jesus. And the Gospel tells us that we're divorced from God, that our relationship with Him is fractured because we consistently choose our own way over His. We want to be in charge, we want to make our own choices, and we don't want to be accountable to anybody because that's annoying. And all of those things are called sin. Now the problem with sin is it results in death. It results in separation from God. And some of you live there. You live in your sin. You are broken by your sin and you never experience the forgiveness of God. And the forgiveness of God feels underwhelming because you're so focused on your sin that you can never get to the love and forgiveness of God because you're so overwhelmed by your sinfulness. The gospel would tell us that God loves us too much to let us go without a fight. So he fights for us. He pursues us. And some of you live in the love and forgiveness part of the gospel, and you're never broken over your sin. So the forgiveness feels underwhelming because you're underwhelmed by your sin. First John chapter 4 says that God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. and it says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, God's desires that we would be with him forever. And even though he knew that most of us would choose to reject that, most of us would choose to reject his love, God fought to get us back anyway. And he paid for our sin at tremendous personal cost. So if you find yourself living in the love and forgiveness part and never being overwhelmed by your sin. Just look at what it cost God to overcome your sin. Your sin is significant and, it, and the conquering of that sin came at tremendous personal cost. And for those of you who live being overwhelmed by your sin and never getting to the love and forgiveness of God, just look at what Jesus paid to free you from that. Look at the cost that Jesus was willing to pay so that you don't have to stay stuck in your sin, that you can move beyond it and experience his love and forgiveness in a real way. See, he loved us enough to do everything required to save us. That's the gospel. That's the story that demonstrates the depth of God's love for us. Now, contrary to popular belief, God did not send Jesus into the world to tell us how bad we are. Most of us are familiar with John 3.16, but very few of us move past that to the following verse, John 3.17, which says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, God didn't send Jesus to point out all of our flaws. He sent Jesus to cover them. God didn't send Jesus to tell us that we deserve to die. He sent him to die in our place. And the story that is revealed in scripture is the saving work of Jesus on behalf of a loving God. Jesus conquered sin and death and Satan. And he didn't just conquer sin by dying for it, but God raised Jesus from the dead to show that he had the power to overcome sin and death and Satan for all of us. So how do we know God? We know him through his word. And in his word, he tells us the story of his love for us, the story of Jesus, the gospel. And the overwhelming truth is that God, the creator, the perfect one, the sinless one, the God of unspeakable power pursued you and fought for you. And so the question is, if we know that to be true, how can we not love him in return? 1 John chapter 4 says we love God because he loved us first. God initiated it. God started it. That's the God that we know. That's the God of the Bible. So if we know God and we understand the gospel, then we love him with everything we've got. Then the question for us becomes if I've accepted the work of Jesus on the cross, if I put my faith and my trust in him as my Lord and Savior, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then who am I? Who am I as a result of knowing God as my Lord and Savior? John chapter one says, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When Jesus took our place, he gave us his place. We are now sons and daughters of the king. We are adopted into his family and we stand to gain a glorious inheritance. Ephesians 5 says that we're adopted as his sons according to his pleasure. That it gives God pleasure to have us in his family. He desires to have us in his family. He wants us to be a part of the good thing that he has for us. See, you've been adopted by a rich, generous, loving father. And those who know and understand what he's done are now the children of God. You're his. Peter puts it this way. He says, but you're a people who belong to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, the enemy of God will often try to remind you of who you were before. He'll remind you of what you've done, of what you've said, of where you've been He'll try to convince you that the sin and the brokenness in your life is your true identity. But that's not your true identity. You've been made new. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says of himself in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how Paul declares, he claims the gospel over his life? He says, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and and gave himself up for me. See, Paul has a gospel identity. Not only are we God's children, we're a new creation, we're loved, We're worth Jesus to God. That's the price that he's willing to pay for us to bring us into his family because it pleases him to do so. And the enemy will come to you and he'll tell you that you don't deserve God. And that's exactly right. And that's why it's good news. See, we're spared from what we deserve. We are no longer condemned. We're justified. We're saved. We're rescued. Because if God, who's the judge, will not condemn us, then who will? See, we have an advocate before God who declares that we're justified by his saving work on the cross. We have someone standing before the judge interceding on our behalf. That's true of us as followers of Jesus. He continues toward the end of that chapter. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're free. We have victory. We are more than conquerors, which sounds great, even if you don't know what it means. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? It means that we have won the supreme victory through the one who loved us, through the one who loved the unlovable. We are victorious through our Savior. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that's who you are. You are a desperately loved child of God. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, don't you see that the gospel rescues us? It saves us. It not only determines whether we go to heaven or hell, which is very important, by the way, but it has the power to redeem every broken part of our lives. It changes everything. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you have an identity that's rooted in the gospel? Or are you still listening to the lies of the enemy who would tell you that all of this is a show, that you're just pretending to be something better than you really are? Don't believe that. Don't believe that. Jesus rescued you from that. He saved you from that at tremendous cost. He paid the price so that you don't have to live there anymore. Now, it's possible that you're thinking now, you know, Dennis, you've said this before. In fact, I I think you say this every week. You know, most of us have heard the gospel before. And I would just say, yeah, I, I know that that's true. I know that we hear it. I just don't know that we know it. See, we think the gospel is the thing that we say to people to get them to believe in Jesus. And we call that evangelism. And we say, we'll tell you all about God and all about Jesus until you become a believer, until you become a follower of Christ. But once you believe, we say, okay, now that you're in the club, here's a Bible. Here are all the rules you need to follow. And we call that discipleship. That's not living a life that's surrendered to Jesus. That's just behavior modification. That's why we get so frustrated. That's why we don't feel any different. That's why we don't feel free. Because in our new life in Christ, when we struggle with sin, we just say to each other, the Bible says don't struggle with that. So we just work harder at not sinning. We just try to gut it out. We're going to try to will ourselves not to sin. And how's that working out? Not well. Not well at all. See, discipleship is all about knowing God through Jesus. It's always about knowing God through Jesus. True discipleship is just the gospel applied to your life. See, we said at the beginning that who we are and what we do is driven by our understanding of who God is so that who we are, our identity, and what we do, our behavior, are driven by our understanding of who God is. So what do I do when I struggle with sin? If saying don't sin isn't helpful enough, what is helpful? Well, here's the question. What if, what if we were to apply the gospel to that struggle or that sin issue in your life? So I have a recent example of this, something that I struggled with, something that we struggled with in our family, actually, Krista and I both, really struggled with anxiety and frustration in our lives recently, a time when when I was just feeling real anxiety and stress over a particular situation. And let me give you a tool that's been really helpful for me. It's not my tool. I totally stole this. But here it is, just a couple of questions that I want you to ask. And it has to do with where our foundation is and what the fruit of our life is. Where am I rooted and what is the fruit that's coming out of my life? So here's what it looks like. The first question is, who is God and what has he done? It's sort of two questions, but that's that gets at the root of what I believe to be true. And the second question is also two questions. Who am I and what do I do? Who am I and what do I do? So it's, who is God and what has he done? That's about where I'm rooted. And then it's about who am I and what do I do? That's about the fruit that comes out of my life. Now, in this case, we're going to address them in reverse because we're starting with the fruit. So the the fruit in my life right now, the fruit in our marriage right now is anxiety. That's what Krista and I are struggling with in this situation in our life. The what I do is anxiety. That's the fruit. So if I'm really honest with myself, if I just start backing through these questions, if I'm really brutally honest, what am I believing about myself? What am I believing about who I am? Well, I believe I'm in control. I believe it's up to me to control the outcome of my circumstances. That's what I'm believing right now. And I believe that I'm alone. Because the truth is that right now in this stressful, anxious situation, I feel like God isn't there. I feel like I've been left to do this and handle this on my own. So if the fruit of my life is anxiety and that's what I believe I am, I believe I'm in control and I believe that I'm alone, that if I'm really honest with myself, what am I believing about what God has done? Now, I might not I might know that this is not true, but if I'm being honest, this is what the fruit of my life says I believe. Does that make sense? I I know these things aren't true, but this is what the fruit of my life would say that I believe. What do I really believe about what God has done? Well, I believe that God got me into this situation and then he bailed on me. That's the truth. I, I believe that God abandoned me. I believe that God doesn't love me or at the very least he doesn't care about me in this situation. What I want to say is that God isn't choosing to control my situation right now, but the truth is I believe that God isn't in control of my situation and then it's up to me to be in control. That's what I believe God has done. So who is God to me right now in my life, in this situation? Well, he's distant, he's unloving and uncaring, and he's powerless. So at the root of my problem of anxiety, I don't believe that God is who he said he is. Now, even in saying those things, I know that those aren't true, but my behavior would say that this is what I believe. So I need to turn from that incorrect view of God to a right view of God. There's a, there's a biblical term for that. Anybody know what that is? Turning from the incorrect to the correct? It's called repentance. See, I need to repent of an incomplete or inaccurate view of God. I have to claim what I know about God and let that influence my behavior. So let's just start from the root and go back to the fruit. Let's start with who is God and what has he done? Now, I can't just make this up. I've got to look into his word. I've got to look into his story. I have to look at what I know of God to be true from his word and speak it back into my life. So who is God? Well, God is near. How do I know that? We just finished the book of Acts. Chapter 17 says that he's not far from any one of us. What else? Well, I know I have the Holy Spirit. I have the very Spirit of God in me. How much closer can he get? So I know that God is near. I know that from his word. I know that God is loving. God demonstrates his love and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5. I know that God loves me because look at what he was willing to do for me. To rescue me and invite him into his family. So I know that God loves me. I know that from his story. I know that from his son. I know that God is powerful and in control. How do I know that from the gospel? Because in the moment when it looked like God was most out of control and that God was most powerless, when Jesus had died and been buried and it looked like the enemy had won a victory, that God raised Jesus from the dead. That God demonstrated that not only did he have the power to raise Jesus from the dead, but that he was in complete control the whole time that it was all part of God's plan to rescue us. So if that's who God is and that's what he's done, then who am I? Well, I'm not alone. I know that. I have the very spirit of God in in me, with me, all the time. I'm a loved child of God. I'm worth Jesus to him. And I'm under the protection of a powerful and loving Heavenly Father under the power of a God who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead. I'm under his protection. I'm under his, he has the control of my situation. I know that to be true, even though it doesn't look like it to me or feel like it. So then what do I do? Well, I relax. I experience peace. I maybe even experience joy. See, when our lives are rooted in the gospel, in an accurate and true understanding of who God is, then the fruit of our lives is the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see how that works? And it's not just those who don't know God who need the gospel. We all need it all the time to be constantly changed and shaped by knowing God. Because who we are, our identity, and what we do, our behavior is driven by our understanding of who God is. We wanna be a church that knows that. We wanna be a church that knows God. Not a church that knows a lot about God, but a group of people who really know God and really love God because we know what God has done for us. We know that we're rescued and redeemed from sin and that our lives are forever changed. And we believe it because we've tried it and it works. We believe it because we've applied the gospel to our life and we've repented of those areas where we have an inaccurate view of God that we've put on the gospel and we found that it works because it frees us from our sin and it allows us to live in the fruit of the spirit. See, we have to share the gospel here every week because we know that some of those in the room on Sunday morning or some of you even listening right now have not surrendered your lives to Jesus. We don't ever want you to come into this place or listen to a sermon from this place and not know who God is and what he's done. See, we have to share the gospel, even to those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus, because we want you to know it, because we want you to be rooted in it, because we want it to shape who we are. That's why we take communion together every month. We do it for the purpose of remembering the gospel and claiming it over our lives, claiming that identity that we belong to Jesus through his saving work on the cross. We want you to fall more and more and more in love with Jesus because we talk about what we love, because we talk about what works. If we get good at doing that with each other, if we get good at speaking the gospel into the lives of one another, you won't be able to stop us from sharing with our friends and our neighbors and anybody who will listen. Because if we help each other fall more and more in love with God and we see the truth of the gospel changing lives by breaking addictions and saving marriages and overcoming fears and answering desperate prayers and redeeming people, you won't be able to get us to shut up about our relationship with God and how much we love him. So my encouragement to us is let's be that church because who we are as a church is driven by our understanding of who God is. So let's fall in love with God. Let's know God through his word, because his word tells us his story, and his story tells us about Jesus, and Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father. So the question for us as a church is, do you know God? Do you know God? And would you pray that you would fall more and more in love with him?